late 2020. At the coastal resort of Puerto Vallarta in the western state of Jalisco in Mexico, the former governor Aristóteles Sandoval was in a restaurant. When Sandoval rose from the table, a gunman approached and shot him several times in the back, a targeted murder that bore the hallmarks of a gang killing. This high-profile murder is just one of the many that have been taking place. It is an election year in Mexico, and according to the government, at least 60 Mexican politicians have been murdered in the past six months. Yet this phenomenon is not exclusive to Mexico. In Italy, 134 politicians were killed between 1974 and 2014, and there were over 1,000 violent attacks against politicians between 2013 and 2015. In Colombia, in 2019, seven political candidates were murdered. In Uganda, 54 people, including the opposition leader's bodyguard, were murdered in early November of last year during the electoral campaign for the 2021 elections. The assassination of politicians by organized crime needs greater attention. These murders have a serious impact on politics, corruption, and communities across the world. This is the Faces of Assassination from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I am Siria Gastelum Felix, the Resilience Director at the GI. Throughout this series of podcasts, we'll be hearing stories of those who fought back against organized crime and speaking to those who are organizing the fight back today. And crucially, we will discuss how you can play a part in tackling this important issue by joining the Global Initiative's Assassination Witness Campaign. In this episode, we'll be discussing the role of organized crime and corruption in these targeted assassinations. Joining me on the podcast today is Antonio Sampaio, Senior Analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Roman Lecour-Ranmaison, Co-Founder and Chief Research Officer at Noria Research. He has a PhD from Sorbonne University and is a member of the GI Network of Experts. And Gemma Dipopa, Postdoctoral Fellow in Political Science at Stanford University. Welcome to the Faces of Assassination. Roman, if I can start with you, why are politicians at a greater risk of being assassinated and what are the causes of violence and the actors behind it? Thank you, Syria. I think if we want to understand uh, violence and, and organized crime and the role of politicians within it, I think we should go beyond the thinking in terms of criminals versus the state. Organized crime, whatever we, we want to put in the word, is always connected to the system, to the economic system, to the political system. So I think it's important to understand the relationships that tie criminals and the state and political authorities as networks. I think it's a, it's a two-way street. It's not a question of crime infesting society. I think it's a question of understanding crime and violence as they belong to society, actually. And, and illicit and illicit worlds are permanently connected 
So the licit world can use the licit world for a number of tasks, including suppressing social mobilizations, repressing social movements, controlling land, managing corruption. And it's, it's not a black and white explanation. So in that sense, I think if we agree on the fact that the licit and the illicit worlds are intertwined, well, we need to understand violence within this world as a resource, as a political resource. And I think that's why the relationship between crime and politics are so entangled and so complex to, to understand and identify. Because again, like this, this world is a, is a gray world. It doesn't belong to a black and white explanation. So we need to, again, understand the connections that are not a question of capturing the state, you know, like criminals don't want to overthrow the governments in general. I think it's, it's really important. Usually criminal actors want to interact with the political world, including with the use of violence. And in that sense, again, violence becomes a political resource. And I think that's why politicians become such targets in, in, in multiple environments. And Roman, how can we better understand the links between violence against politicians and organized crime? The narrative that wants to provide an explanation of narcos versus the state is actually the way of analyzing violence in Mexico through the war on drugs perspective, actually. It's the intention of trying to separate the state from the criminal world, the state and politics from, from violence, which is, of course, the issue of, of policy. I mean, policy should be, you know, separating public authority from crime and, and, and violence. If we get into terms of analysis, political analysis, we have to think about the state as it is, as it works, and not the state as we want it to be. In that, in that sense, in Mexico, the history of violence of, of the Mexican state is extremely well documented. Um, it's not a question of a new trend, a new wave of violence that should have appeared in the past 10 to 15 to 20 years ago when, you know, the new narcos are supposed to have become uh, this kind of political actors that want to topple the state, that want to fight the state. I mean, the, the Mexican state has been built on the use of violence by multiple actors, private actors. It could be violent entrepreneurs. It could be absolutely legal entrepreneurs using violence to achieve, let's say, trade goals, for example. The use of violence by public forces, it's been absolutely well documented again throughout the 20th century. And the use of violence by criminal actors, which in Mexico tend to be associated with drug traffickers, the narcos traffickers. In that sense, again, we have to understand the fact that, to my knowledge and, and, and through my research, what I see is that criminal actors, again, don't want to overthrow the state. They want to open a space of negotiation, collaboration with public authorities to have access to the system, basically, have access to the political and economic system. That access can be granted through corruption, through collaboration, through collusion, and it can also be granted through violence, actually. And in that sense, I think what we could be doing better is understanding that violence is not an obstacle to power. It's actually a resource for economic and political power that, that is in the hands of private actors, traffickers in that case, for example, but also public actors, for example, mayors, governors, um, public forces that use violence to achieve 
a certain array of, of political and economic objectives. And I think that's the complex world um, that Mexico lives in, basically, where violence is a resource, violence is a market that is in the hands of maybe more and more actors throughout uh, history. And that's what's so complex about it today. Thank you for that. And now, Antonio, if I can turn to you, in the Brazilian case, the assassinations of politicians by organized crime is also prevalent. Why is that? Yeah, a lot of similarities, actually, from what Romain was saying. Indeed, the linkage between politics and crime, crime indeed does not see the state and the political power always as an obstacle or as an enemy, but actually these networks of corruption and selling and aligning their violence with politics can be quite profitable and quite effective as a means to control territories or control illicit economies without needing to clash with the state and with rivals, criminal rivals, militia rivals. So the the picture of organized crime in Brazil changes quite considerably from region to region, and the alliances with politics change alongside that. We see in the north and northeast that the political assassinations are sometimes connected, or quite often connected, to disputes involving land. So agriculture and illicit appropriation of land for agriculture is quite a prominent illicit economy or, or, or activity that is done illicitly by very powerful individuals, and that is linked to some assassinations. And in the southeast, especially in Rio and Sao Paulo, that's where we see more structured and more, let's say, hierarchical organized criminal groups organizing and, and forming these alliances, these more sophisticated alliances with politicians and even with police officers to, for instance, allow certain candidates to do campaign in a specific area, in a specific slum, especially, which is where, in the case of Rio, where criminal gangs have a territorial control. So they form these alliances with, with politicians to help them get elected in exchange for political support, for um some favors in politics and for money. And recently in Brazil, we've seen the emergence of the militias, which is very concerning, very worrying development. They are still a form of organized crime, but they are their narrative is against drug trafficking. They, they say that they are fighting the criminal gangs and they are formed mostly by off-duty or former military police officers or sometimes even military officers and they are quite strictly aligned to the police and sometimes to political figures, even in the legislative bodies of the state of Rio and the municipality of Rio. And Antonio, how do organized criminal groups benefit from these acts? So the militias, they, they, they forge a much more regular and, and sophisticated relationship with politicians and with the state. So whereas drug trafficking organizations have much less regular access to politicians and to police officers, it's much more difficult for them to form alliances, bribe police officers to convince them to not operate or favor them um, in exchange for money, for instance. For militias, because they emerge from the very core of the state, and especially the law enforcement, the security arm of the state, which is the military police, sometimes the civilian police, the military bodies, the, the armed forces, and even the fire brigades, 
because the, the members come from these institutions, they can form these very close cooperation in a way that sometimes several experts, local experts in Brazil have noticed over the last few years that the police has been conducting many more operations within areas controlled by drug traffickers than with militias. So that is important because when it comes to political disputes in Brazil, which have a history of political violence, of assassinations and intimidation, it is then the militias that are most well-positioned to offer these services of violence, as Ramin said, violence as a resource for, for political power to the politicians. So we, we've seen not only the militias, but also there is a very famous, unfortunately, death squad in Rio that is called very simply the Oficina do Crime, which is the crime office, which has been linked to several political assassinations. And there are indeed several politicians in the, in the, in the Rio assembly that are allegedly linked to such crimes. So it is quite a strict linkage between the militias and, and politicians. And there is a concern that these linkages have been growing. Thank you, Antonio. And now, Gemma, I'm going to you because, of course, political assassinations are not exclusive to Latin America. They happen all over the world. And you've looked at the political violence in the Italian context and elsewhere. So what type of patterns can you identify in the assassinations of politicians. Yeah, so thank you, Syria. So in a paper with uh, Gianmarco Daniele, we created a database of all attacks that took place against Italian politicians in the most recent years. And I think really the first thing that calls attention is the number. Each year, there are more than 300 attacks against Italian politicians. So this is not at all a sporadic and rare event. Uh, in most cases, the victims are local politicians and in particular city mayors. And the, uh, the type of attack varies a lot, but the most common are to set the politician's property or the city all on fire and to send threatening messages. But there are also uh, more traditional mafia-style attacks, such as bombing, and unfortunately, in some cases also, some politicians were murdered. Now, a striking pattern that we see in this data is that there is a large and visible increase in attacks against politicians right around the period of elections. And of course, uh, we were interested in understanding why this is the case. Why do criminal groups attack politicians in the election period? And we considered two possibilities. First, it is possible that criminal groups want to discourage honest politicians to run for office. They want to screen out those non-corruptible politicians from the electoral competition so that they will not have to deal with them in the future. And if this is the case, then we should observe attacks taking place before elections. A second possibility is that organized crime attacks to obtain influence over whichever government gets elected. And then if this is the case, they will use attacks to put pressure on the new government as soon as it is elected. And so we should observe violence after elections take place. So what we find in the data is a strong support for this second idea. There is a 10% increase in the probability to observe attacks against politicians at the outset of uh, after elections, right in the 30 days right after local elections. And this is really a key period in which mayors appoint their government team and present their program. So it is a crucial period to influence important choices made by the government. And so in a way, I think this is really similar to what also Antonia Roman have been saying about uh, Brazil and Mexico. So just to summarize, I think violence against politicians has been often treated as uh, just the sum of 
single different episodes that happen for a number of different reasons. But in our study, we find evidence that this is not necessarily the case. Violence is actually used systematically to strategically influence politicians as soon as they take possession of their office. And so we must be aware of this pattern if we want to try and stop it in the future. And Gemma, what are the implications of assassinations on organized crime dynamics in Italy? So I think to understand why killings take place, it is important to keep in mind that killing a politician is a costly action for organized crime. And it is even more costly in the context of a strong state that is likely to react to a killing of a politician with some strong reaction. So, for example, in Italy, the biggest reaction of the state against organized crime happened after the assassination of the judge Giovanni Falcone. And this was really a swift reaction. In just one year, After the bombing of Falcone's car, the state was able to locate and arrest the leader of Cosa Nostra, Totorina. So this was obviously a big success that would have not been possible without a strong reaction of the civil society to the killing, something that put a lot of pressure on the government to act and obtain results. So politician killings are costly also for criminal groups, and they are generally used as a last resort when it is too difficult to bend politicians and where politicians are really undermining the activity of criminal groups. But there is also another case when organized crime kills, and is when there is little public attention towards the politicians that are victims of violence. When the media does not give a lot of coverage to violence against politicians, then it is less costly for organized crime to attack them. And in fact, it is not by chance that, at least in the database that we observe in Italy, Most politicians that are victims of violence are local, municipal-level politicians that are rarely under the spotlight of the media. And instead, at least in the case of Italy, criminal groups use different methods that are more silent to attack national-level politicians because, of course, attacks against them would truly backfire against criminal groups. So organized crime chooses to assassinate politicians when politicians are a real danger and they cannot be bent with other methods. And this is, of course, something desirable for society, something that we want to be the case. But they also kill when the cost of using violence is low, when they're unlikely to suffer serious consequences from using this violence because there is just too little reaction from the public opinion. So this is exactly what we should try to prevent. We should make killings as costly as possible for criminal groups by truly paying attention to politicians that are under attack. But unfortunately, this is not the case. When we talk about political assassination, the issues of impunity and corruption are definitely important factors. Now, Antonio, the assassination of councilwoman Maria Franco in 2018 sent shockwaves, creating political instability and fear that organized crime had infiltrated Brazilian institutions specifically because of a sense of lack of criminal justice. Impunity is a common factor in political assassinations. What is the impact of this lack of accountability and how does organized crime contribute to it? Yes, impunity is a huge problem when it comes in general to criminal violence in Brazil, but especially in regards to this type of political violence. There are very few cases of murdered politicians that reach the criminal justice system. The the investigations are not brought to court. They end, they they die without pointing to any suspects. And indeed, that is, uh, from from what Gemma was saying, I was thinking how, you know, the difference between Italy, in which, you know, the state was able to react and to, you know, crack down to make 
political assassinations costly to politicians, whereas in Brazil, the number of political assassinations is rising. So just in 2020, there were 107 assassinations linked to political motivations, according to the newspaper Estado de São Paulo, which also pointed to the gradual increase. So in 2004, there were just 31 cases registered. So it's more than threefold increase. And very few cases reached the, the criminal justice system. You mentioned Marielle Franco, who was a lawmaker in Rio de Janeiro from a slum area called Maré. She was very activist, very linked to social justice causes. And she was murdered in broad daylight when, when she was in the car alongside her driver, who was also, also murdered. And because of her mobilization, because of what she represented, issues of social justice in Rio and human rights, I think that case got a lot of attention. And perhaps because of this, two men were arrested and are now waiting to be, to be tried, to, to go on trial. And just to illustrate the issue of the linkage between politics, the state and crime, they are both former military police officers, which highlights that issue of militias and how they are the instruments coming from the state itself, but forming this illicit sort of death squad style and vigilante style groups. They become tools for illicit methods to achieve power. So they are waiting to be tried. However, one very common phrase now in Brazil for human rights defenders is who asked for Marielle to be murdered? Who ordered the killing? which has not been elucidated yet. But the main lines of investigation point to the militias because Marielle was very actively trying to pursue investigations and to shed light into activities of the militias in some, in some areas of Rio. Thank you, Antonio. Roman, previously Gemma mentioned a really emblematic case that had important consequences. I was just wondering if there have been any consequences at all in Mexico regarding political assassinations. I think what Gemma and Antonio were saying about the cost of political violence and the relation it has with impunity is absolutely fundamental to, to, to understand Mexico. To be absolutely honest, there are no consequences to violence in Mexico in general, and there are no consequences to political or electoral violence in Mexico. I mean, maybe you have a strong political mobilization after very emblematic cases. Uh, you have certainly a media attention for certain cases. Recently, the ex-governor of the state of Jalisco in the center-west part of, of Mexico was killed. And you had you know, this, this couple of days of, of mobilization and, and everybody from public authorities to the media were, were saying that an investigation was open and going on. And then usually, most of the time, the cases absolutely disappear. And I think that's the main issue for the Mexican system and for the Mexican society in, in, in general, is that violence is not costly at all, and political violence is not costly at all either. So it means that it's basically very cheap, in all the senses of the term, actually, to use violence to impose your political will, which means that everybody, from criminals to entrepreneurs to political actors, to armed forces are eager to use violence to impose a will because they know that there won't be any consequence, any legal consequence to that. Unfortunately, the main consequence that you could face if you kill the wrong person in Mexico is that you get killed as well, which means that impunity works for the legal system, but in, in society in general, killings 
usually follow other killings as a response to the use of violence against, you know, high-targeted officials and that kind of persons. So in, in that sense, I think it's really, really, really important to raise the issue of, of the cost of political violence. And what Gemma was saying with regards to the Italian cases, I think Italy is, is not used enough in the Mexican cases and maybe in the Latin American cases as an example of, you know, every, everything is not perfect in Italy, as Gemma was actually saying, but you had at some point a reaction both from civil society, which exists in Mexico, but a response from public authorities, from the state, to actually raise the cost of use of multiple ways of violence, multiple use of violence, but raise the cost of the use of political violence in particular. You can't kill you know, elected officials, you can't kill mayors, you can't kill governors. In Mexico, it's absolutely not the case, unfortunately. What you say is really concerning because this year, Mexico is expecting one of its largest elections in history. More than 20,000 officials will be elected in one single day of elections. As we heard at the top of the show, reports say that already 64 people have been killed in the past six months alone. And due to the history of assassinations in this country, this election period raises serious concerns. Roman, what kind of protection mechanisms exist in Mexico? Are there any institutions or organizations even talking about it, doing anything to stem this wave of targeted violence? Well, I think one of the main issues in, in Mexico, and as Antonio and, and Gemma were saying, is that violence and political violence is not costly at all. It means that you can use violence in a way to influence elections that doesn't bring consequences to the people that actually tend to, to mobilize those violent means. In terms of protection, unfortunately, not enough is being done in, in Mexico. You have mobilizations by civil society, you have mobilizations by the media trying to shed some light on what's going on in, in, in the country in terms of political and ele electoral violence. Unfortunately, the state and public authorities in general are not providing the necessary level of public protection to the candidates. At the local level, if, if you're in office and if you're threatened while you're in office, you can ask for a military protection, a police protection from the federal government. And then during the elections themselves, there is a special prosecutor's office at the federal level in, in Mexico, which is called FEPADE, which is supposed to protect candidates, protect citizens voting as well, protect the electoral cycle by providing, again, like basically security forces and training to security forces to make this electoral cycle safer than what it is right now. Unfortunately, if we go back to what we were saying during the conversation, and if we agree on the fact that the issue is the relations between the political power and the criminal power, it means that when the state provides you with the protection, sometimes, and more often than not in Mexico, it is part of the issue. If you have a police unit that is protecting you, but this police unit is actually tied to a criminal group, is actually tied to a violent entrepreneur that you don't agree with, it means that the police force that is supposed to protect you becomes part of the threat. And that is something that we have been working on with, uh, with Noria right now in the past months and right now trying to monitor those elections coming up. And what elected officials and candidates are saying is that they basically feel 
absolutely not safe while engaging in any political activity in many, many parts of Mexico. And that's what's so staggering about the level of violence that is used in the political system in, in Mexico is that it means that participating to political activity becomes a life and death activity, a life and death choices for women and men who want to get into, into democratic life in Mexico. And if you want to gain protection, if you want to gain safety while you're a political candidate, well, unfortunately, you don't really go to the state because you don't trust the state to protect you. So you usually tend to go to alternative protection mechanisms which means that you will go to a criminal group, you will go to a violent entrepreneur, and you will actually feed the system of alternative protection that will bring maybe safety to you on the day of the election. But as Gemma was saying, the problem is that once you're elected, you won't be protected for much longer if you know the political economy of crime in the region you've been elected changes suddenly. If the stakes change, if the actors change, well, you won't get any protection from the actor that was supposed to protect you initially. So that, that means that basically the protection you have in Mexico from the state is weak. The protection you have from violent entrepreneurs might be strong at some point, but it's very, very unstable in the long run. So it means that as a political candidate or as, as an elected official, especially at the local level, you can't rely on much in order to survive in, in, in the political system today. That's really concerning. And Gemma, going back to you, are there any success stories in terms of prevention? What type of responses are needed to prevent the assassination of politicians? Yeah, so I think uh, the first implication of our research on Italy is that there is one specific period in which politicians are most fragile. And this is the period after elections take place. There is a systematic increase in attacks against politicians in this period. And so it is at this point that police forces should be mobilized to help protecting mayors and, of course, other members of the local government from the pressure of organized crime. But more in general, I think whenever a government has to take important decisions that involve large amounts of money, then this is the moment in which they are most likely to be target of organized crime violence. So, for example, now there is judicial evidence that large amounts of funds that were destined to reconstruction after the earthquakes that hit Italy ended up in the hands of criminal groups. And these funds were, of course, obtained by using pressure against politicians, probably in a mix of violence and rewards for politicians willing to comply. So an increase in police forces and protection for who is in charge of large amounts of money is really essential to avoid not only violence against politicians, but also the misappropriation of public funds by criminal groups. However, I think besides the response by the police, there is also a role for the civil society, which I think is perhaps even more important. And the reason is that protection is not only obtained with police presence. What really protects politicians is public opinion, I think. And if a lot of people are watching, if everybody realizes that politicians are under attack and there is a reaction of the civil society, then also the state and the police mobilize more strongly against criminal groups. And at some point, organized crime will considerably restrict the use of violence to obtain what they want. I think this is also what Antonia has been saying for Brazil and Romanian Mexico politicians that operate and live in organized crime affected areas across countries 
are really putting their lives on the line. And in some cases, they surrender to the pressure and collude with criminal groups. But in other cases, they decide to withstand this pressure. And they can here become victims of violence and murder from organized crime. So it is, of course, a responsibility of the police, but also of the civil society and of the media to protect them by paying them sufficient attention. And this is something that we should do not only to protect the politicians as a person, but really to protect our democratic institution from the capture of uh, organized crime. Thank you, Gemma. And in fact, the assassination witness campaign is about the role that civil society can play to prevent political assassinations. And Marielle Franco was, in fact, one of the profiles featured in the 50 Faces of Assassinations book that was launched with the campaign. So, Antonio, going back to you, in relation to Brazil, what do you think needs to be done to address political assassinations? So, in one sense, the situation has started to improve by the the greater awareness of civil society and the way that the Brazilian press has been shedding light into this issue much more actively and much more explicitly than before. But of course, we've seen that this has not led to a reduction, much to the contrary. There's been an increase in political assassinations in Brazil. And, and that leads me to the policy side of things that has been, in terms of organized crime in general, security policies in Brazil have been extremely poor, extremely simplistic and short-term. I've written about this several times, but in terms of political assassinations and political violence in general, just to give you a number, in 2020, when there were municipal elections in Brazil, 500 towns and cities asked for federal security reinforcements. That has become a current issue in Brazil in terms of responding to organized crime, not just in political violence, but basically local forces become overwhelmed or there is no trust in them because of political infiltration that federal reinforcements are called in. Sometimes even the armed forces in the case of 2020 were called to to reinforce. But that itself doesn't fully prevent the issue, of course, because political assassinations still occur before the elections or before the forces arrive or after. You know, that's not a solution. And in terms of, I think there is a a need for better intelligence and a more comprehensive approach that takes, as Gemma said, and investigates the the, the linkages and the networks that operate that. And that is indeed a very structural issue, something that is not forged and is not implemented quickly. So it has improved, I think, the federal police and a few other Brazilian institutions and the justice system, the the prosecutors have become better in, in doing that. But more resources need to be put into really investigating these lines of, of corruption and crime that underline political violence in Brazil. Thank you, Antonio. Now, Roman, what are your recommendations to address this issue? And do you think there's any role that the international community can play? I mean, most of these cases are local, but why should we care? I think it goes in line with, with again, what, what, what Gemma and, and Antonio were saying. And I think, actually, the fact of thinking about, you know, Latin America, Brazil, Mexico, in contrast with, with Italy, is extremely interesting. The, I think the issue in, in, in Mexico is not that civil society is not aware, is not that the media is not aware of what's going on, and the international community is not aware of, of what's going on. Everybody is actually very much aware of what happens in general terms. The issue is first, although it's undeniable that organized crime groups are part of the issue, I think the argument that Marcos 
are the sole actor behind electoral and political violence in Mexico is not, is not satisfactory. I think it tends to leave aside the active or passive participation, protection, collaboration, or patronage from politicians and or public armed forces, as well as from other public or private coercive actors in elections, like businessmen, local strongmen, non-elected figures to, of influence, informal authorities, and, and many more, to the practices of violence that, that we're discussing today. There is an infinite list of acts of repression, threats, or assassinations that are attributable to such political, criminal, illicit, illicit gray area of the political economy of, of crime in Mexico. And second, I think we tend to forget a crucial characteristic of electoral and political violence in Mexico, its political geography. In the vast majority of cases, electoral and political violence target elected officials at the municipal level first in Mexico, but may, maybe even more important, the territories that are more affected by, by this type of violence are not the ones where drug cartels are the most active in Mexico. In 2018, which were the most violent elections in, in Mexico history, Oaxaca, Puebla, and Veracruz were at top of the list in terms of electoral violence. And it's states where we don't tend to put our attention because it's not narco states. So I think it is crucial to produce, and Antonio was saying that, more local, grounded, and nuanced analysis in order to provide a more complex understanding of what's going on. And then the zero-sum game in interpretation of narcos versus the state not only misses the core of political criminal relations, it also, I think, weakens the way policy is actually designed in order to tackle those issues. So I think we have to go first to the municipalities or regions that are most affected by political and electoral violence and produce proper analysis, proper diagnosis on what is actually going on before knowing how we address the situation. And then, just to finish, I will go back to the issue of the, of the cost of violence. Again, in Mexico, civil society is extremely aware of political and electoral violence. The problem is that the policy side is very weak and justice is almost totally absent. So the, the security strategy is failing, I think, mainly because it is absolutely not accompanied by any true judicial improvement. And I think that's, that's the main issue in, in, in Mexico. The lack of justice just feeds electoral and political violence. I agree. I guess civil society is aware of these political assassinations that are happening, but it's a very superficial level of awareness because, as you say, the narrative is just organized crime, kill this candidate, and that's it. That's the end of the story. There's no real understanding of the criminal politics behind this story that will allow civil society to understand the real dynamics of corruption, politics, and organized crime to interpret these political assassinations in a context that will allow these communities to take action or even understand that this is something that can eventually have an impact on their own lives in the democracy of their country, of their city, of their community. Antonio, you wanted to jump in now. I just wanted to reinforce what Romain said about this geographical distribution of political violence, because in Brazil, it's also the case that the overwhelming majority of political assassinations or assassinations of candidates happen in small municipalities. And I think it underlines the 
the linkage between this type of violence and impunity or the weakness of the law enforcement and criminal justice system, where in, in small towns this tends to be more difficult to investigate. The police forces are less capable of conducting sophisticated investigations, and also the, the media has a smaller footprint in, in such areas. Parallel to this, there's also a trend in Brazil of assassinations growing also in big cities in Rio, which may seem contradictory. However, as I said before, the issue of the highly sophisticated militias and organized armed groups that have been growing in cities such as Rio de Janeiro, they are linked to areas that where the state is weak, even in the big cities, so the slums, the favelas. So this absence of state authority or this weakness of state authority, uh, be that in small towns or even in limited geographies within big cities, I think that is a key component of making impunity and the sense of I can commit these crimes even you know, in broad daylight. Uh, I think that that plays into, into the equation as well. Thank you, Antonio. Gemma, is there anything you would like to add? I really want to say that I agree with what uh, Roman and Antonio have been saying. And I think one aspect that I didn't mention in my answer, but that is crucial, is that indeed there has been a lot of impunity also in Italy, also in the Italian case, for those killings, for these attacks against politicians, and in general, for any episode connected to organized crime. It's really difficult to arrive at a stage in which there is prosecution and sentencing of criminal groups. So I think this is another aspect on which uh, it is needed that the state invests more and provides more certainty to citizens that there will be a response. Otherwise, it's very difficult to ask politicians and everybody else to put themselves on the line and act for the state when there is so little response to crimes committed against them. Political power and criminal power do not exist separately. What we often see are complex scenarios where politics and organized crime meet violently in the process of democracy. And the consequences for communities can be devastating. Political assassinations are taking place with impunity in many communities across the world. And I want to thank our guests today for shedding light into this issue in Mexico, Brazil, Italy, and elsewhere. Muchas gracias, Roman, Gemma, Antonio. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of the Faces of Assassination podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Please go to our website, assassination.globalinitiative.net, sign up for our newsletter, help us remember the death anniversaries using our hashtag, assassinationwitness. You can also download a free ebook which profiles 50 victims of assassinations who have yet to receive justice the best tribute you can pay to the courageous people who stood up to crime is to keep their memories alive and with our collective memory, shine a light into this darkness. To hear other podcasts from the GI, just visit our website, www.globalinitiative.net. This was the Faces of Assassination podcast. My name is Siria Gastelum-Felix, Thank you for listening.